0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 16. You're going to get real familiar with these verses. Uh, You may have noticed that throughout this series, we've basically read the same block every week, but that's great uh, because the Bible says that we're not supposed to just have some kind of haphazard, maybe I kind of know what the scriptures say, but they're supposed to be written upon our heart in such a way that when needed, we can draw those up and really have memorized and known uh, what the Word of God says. So we're going to be launching from this set of verses for the entirety of this series, and that's a good thing. I'm thankful for it. So uh, we are continuing this week in our series, it's called Fruit of the Spirit. And so we're taking nine weeks to seek, to learn about, and live out the nine divine attributes listed here in Galatians 5. And these attributes should mark the life of every follower of Jesus. We made a distinction a couple weeks ago between uh, the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, and uh, that is available online. Um, We've done both love and joy so far, and those are both available online if you need to catch up. So those are there just so you know. So that means, if we've done love and joy, that this week we're going to be wading into the deep water of God's peace. And I describe it as deep water because the Bible is full of references to the peace of God and peace with God. Uh, And as has been true thus far in this series, uh, these fruit of the Spirit or these divine attributes that are shared with those who are filled with the Spirit of God because they are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. These fruit of the Spirit tend to have more going on with them than we can grasp by just kind of skimming the surface. So you're going to notice throughout this series, um, I'm going to be soaking you with a lot of Scripture, man. I'm going to be just turning on the fire hydrant and trying to soak you with as much Scripture as I possibly can. Because um, there's commentaries and there's things to say, and I've got opinions about this stuff, but what I really want is when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, for you to know what the Bible says and for us to really be using the Word of God as a mirror to basically show us our own reflection, to see that these are the fruit of the Spirit, these are the marks, the traits of somebody that is filled with the Holy Spirit because Jesus has changed their heart, and, and we want to really look and see, okay, are these things evidenced, uh, what does the Bible mean when it says love joy peace patience kindness let's let's make sure we're on the same page with the Lord Jesus about these things, but then also use this as a as a way to uh, judge ourselves, which the Bible says is a good thing to do uh, maybe not a popular thing, but uh it's a good thing to do. Amen sometimes those are uh, at the same time people not popular but still good um, Many think that peace is simply the opposite of war. And it is that, but it is really so much more than that. The Hebrew word, and why would I bring up the Hebrew word? Well, that's because the entire Old Testament or Hebrew Bible was written in Hebrew and the the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. You've maybe heard that before. Uh, When you get to the New Testament, to the Greek, it's erene, but it's kind of the same ideas are flowing up out of these two words. It was common for people... Uh, who speak Hebrew, to greet each other with that word or to leave each other with that word. Shalom is a common thing to kind of speak over uh, as a greeting or as kind of, you know, I'm leaving and so I want to leave peace with you. Uh, And so it does not simply mean a lack of conflict. It invokes the idea of wholeness or kind of holistic well-being. Basically, it's saying that all is right and as it should be. That is how the peace of God is understood throughout the scriptures. Um, Now, there's something I want to just confess to you guys in regards to this subject. Because when when I think about the power of God's peace, I often think of Jesus and his disciples when they were in that terrible storm on the boat, right? Jesus is asleep, the disciples are all freaking out, and they go wake him up. And uh, what does he do? He stands up and very, it seems nonchalant. I don't know if I just imagine it that way, but it seems like he just gets up and says, peace be still to this storm that everyone else thought was going to kill him. And, uh, of course, the winds subside and the waves go down. And uh, that I think about that when I think about the power of God's peace. And there's, really, there's nothing wrong with that because that illustrates well uh, that God's peace is a powerful part of who he is. And it's not just a passive thing that happens to us maybe in certain circumstances, but there is a power to the peace of God. It has a proactive and almost offensive nature in, in, as well as it being defensive for us and helpful. But... So there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the, the part I need to confess is the, the mental association I have with that phrase, uh, peace, be still. So this is just me being a wide open book here. So um, I don't know if you guys have, have heard of this or seen this, but there's a guy named Tyler Perry, funny dude, and he's got a character named Medea, all right? And so in the movies, Medea is a large, older black woman who is hilarious and does not take smack off anybody, okay? How many of you know who Medea is? You've at least maybe seen something, Okay. Well, either way, she's just very kind of stereotypically, uh, you know, she's older and she's not about to mess with you whatsoever. She'll smack you down right now. So that's kind of her personality. Um, I don't even remember which movie this particular scene is in, but there's this older guy and he's really ornery. And so there's Medea and her friend and then this other guy and he's just got a real bad attitude and he's saying a lot of mean stuff. He keeps kind of picking at Medea and her friend—he's making fun of him. I think maybe he ends up find, saying something real hateful. I think about somebody's weight or whatever, and that just that everyone kind of starts to get riled up. And so, Medea's friend, who's is just this other sweet little lady, maybe doesn't have quite as much attitude as Medea. She says to this ornery guy that's that's making fun of him. She says, "Peace, be still." You know, so she basically throws a Jesus quote at him. You know, telling him to kind of be quiet. And and that that would be fine. But the problem is then. Uh, then Medea reaches down in her purse and pulls out a pistol and she says peace be still, oh that's nice, but, but what I like to do, what I like to do is keep a piece of steel okay, and she racks the slide every time I hear peace be still I think of that right there, so I just want you to know I don't float in some ethereal uh, holy land of mentality all the time You know, I gotta, I gotta try to push back from Medea, you know, racking the slide on her looks like maybe a raven 25 or something, I don't know what she's carrying, but Uh, I I deal with that mental association every time I hear peace be still. So praise the Lord, hallelujah. Pray for me, okay? Uh, Just so you know, the older ornery guy turns around and doesn't say anything else. (laughs) Uh, I'm thankful, though, that God doesn't force his peace onto his people, like Medea kind of forced peace there, but he offers it to us freely by grace through faith. And we're going to see some of the beauty of that as we read uh, the verses today and see what God's peace is and looks like. So I'm in Galatians 5. I hope you're there. I'm going to start in verse 16 and read to verse 26. So I hope you're ready. Here we go. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Praise God for His Word. So in trying to figure out how much emphasis, prayer, and focus... The people of God should place on the peace of God. I think looking to the first interaction between Jesus and his disciples after his resurrection gives us a powerful clue. So let me just say again plainly, I'm about to read from John chapter 20. And if you're a note taker, I don't want you to try to turn to all the... I'm going to read a lot of scripture tonight. Like I said, I'm going to soak you with scripture uh, because I believe it has power. But I don't want you to try to turn there uh, and end up losing you. But if you're a note taker, you can jot down where these are, and this would be great for you to kind of go back and study yourself later, okay? So I'm going to John 20, and what I'm reading you is, this is the first interaction the Lord Jesus has after rising up out of the grave. He gets back into uh, a place where his disciples are at, and he's about to have a conversation with them, and uh, this is what he says, okay? Okay starting in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, first words from Jesus. You ready? Peace be with you. And we had, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He said two things so far. The risen Lord Jesus, two things have come out of His mouth. What are they? Peace be with you, twice. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And we had when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained." But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So that the other disciples were saying to him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. It keeps telling you that because basically you're supposed to understand from that that Jesus just appears, uh, which is wild. He stood in their midst. He's about to say something. Anybody want to guess what it is? Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now Luke records the event in a similar way. The key here is that the very first thing Jesus said to his disciples when he appeared to them after dying in front of their eyes and rising from the grave was, Peace be with you. This fact, hold that alone, the fact that that's what Jesus comes with post-resurrection, offer it, I think is enough evidence that we should pay attention to what God means when he talks about his peace, when it's said here that this is one of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the divine attributes that we share as image bearers of Christ, of course, imperfectly because of sin. We always have to say that. But you take the fact that this is the thing Jesus says, kind of rapid fire multiple times, right off the And out of the gate in terms of when he's been resurrected, but also Paul begins almost all of his letters with grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look back into church history, you'll find that peace be with you was a widely used phrase by the early church when they greeted each other. And this is something that uh, in in older and more traditional and maybe um, liturgical uh, faith traditions, you will... Uh, hear of something called passing the peace. Has anybody ever been a part of a church fellowship or maybe to a service where they passed the peace? Honestly, in studying for this, I, I think we've, you know, maybe messed up. Maybe we should still be passing the peace. Most places have stopped doing it because we are getting uh, increasingly more awkward the with, you know, person-to-person human interaction. We're great on the keyboard. We're, you know... With the smartphone, but when you put some, you know, you got to like shake a hand and make eye contact and say words to another human where their ears can hear it. People just, whoo, I don't know about that. That makes me feel weird. It's like the most basic thing, uh, but whatever. So, however, passing the peace and, and saying peace be with you, that's the way people greet each other. So that when they left each other, they said this to them. It, it harkens back to that idea of shalom. It all ties together. Peace is a big deal. It's a mega theme in your Bible, uh, and it's a fruit of the Spirit. Because of all of these things, um, the peace of God is something we should seek with fervor to both understand and to walk in. And so, basically, that's building a case for the importance of this. That's building a case for you not nodding out on me because peace doesn't sound like that interesting of a topic to you or because you, you know ate too many carbs before you came and it's air-conditioned in here and you're about to take a nap. This is real important right here. What does God mean when he says Peace. What is he calling us to? What is he offering us? This is all huge. Uh, and it's the, the phrase the master chose uh, to greet his disciples with as he talks to them for the first time, having been resurrected as peace be with you. So what is the peace of God? Let's, let's try to really put some shape to this and see what God is talking about. I'm going to go to John 14 uh, for this. So this is starting in verse 25. It says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus makes a very interesting distinction here between the peace that he gives. And the peace that the world offers. He offers us his peace, which means not only the peace that you see him walk in and operate in, but it's also peace that flows from the the very essence of who he is. Jesus has offered those of us who follow him by faith his peace. The world's understanding of peace is conditional, right? Right? When there is no war or conflict or struggle or calamity, the world would say you have peace or you're in a peaceful time frame or season. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. He didn't say when things are going the way you think they should or you're experiencing a momentary lack of conflict. He said, I give you my peace do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, the difference between the peace of God and the peace that the world offers is anybody can describe themselves as peaceful when the circumstance and the situation dictates saying that, right? If you've figured out a way to get out, you know, get out in the woods away from everybody, hang up your hammock and have a few minutes to yourself, and, and you don't have phone service so you can't watch the news and you... You know, you can't hear about any of the other crazy stuff that's going on around you. You, you might be able to generate some momentary peace, but you're going to have to either go, you know, live off twigs and berries out there to, to stay in that place, or you're going to have to wade back into a world and, and uh, a culture and a system that is broken and ravaged by sin, and uh, you're going to have to deal with that. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be pain points, um, both personally and in you know, interpersonally between people. And so, the peace of God is not determined. By circumstance. The, the peace of God is a deep sense of calm and wholeness. It's a stability and a lack of fear that is not controlled by situation or circumstance. It actually, the peace of God, it rests below those things, circumstances and situations. It rests below those things, much like a skillfully laid foundation to a house. Okay? If a fa- Foundation done right is dug down deep. It's anchored into the earth in such a way that even if a wind came along so strong that it blew the house to the ground, the foundation would not have moved a single inch. The peace of God exists on that plane, where that foundation does. That's not to say that there aren't winds uh, in this life, there aren't trials. And storms, just like Jesus had to say, peace be still to that storm in the boat. Uh, that that's, was a real storm and a real thing that happened, but it also is metaphorically helping us understand what it looks like to deal with uh, life in a world where we are broken and the world is broken because of sin and its effects. This view, seeing the peace of God as a, a stable uh, foundation, a sense of calm and wholeness, It's repeated throughout the Scriptures in different ways. And so if you're not sure yet about this description, if it's uh, accurate or adequate, let's look at a few more verses. Let's see what the Scriptures have for us in terms of understanding the peace of God. I'm in Philippians 4. This is verses 4 through 7. I would say this is some of the clearest and best uh, that the Scriptures have to offer to help us understand the application and give shape to what the peace of God really looks like and what it does. Okay, so this is Philippians 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Some deep stuff there. What, what, what is pointed out? He says, be, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want a key on that. It says it surpasses all comprehension. It's beyond understanding. Can we be honest for a second and say that the unknown, dark spots in the future as we look forward, not knowing how things are going to go, can definitely be a source of fear and trouble for our hearts. The only remedy is to allow the peace of God to stand as a centurion, guarding our hearts from our fickle tendency for fear. Did you hear the language used here? That the peace of God which surpasses all understanding or comprehension, the peace of God, it will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That the peace of God does, is not just a, a general sense of well-being if everything is okay. It's not, it's, it's, not just a, it's not just a an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not, a, it's, it's not that flaccid. It, it has the ability to defend. It has the ability like a soldier to help protect you from the onslaught of the lies of the enemy, uh, the confusion of your own flesh and trying to Work out what's going on in your own heart and the effects of the fact that uh, our world is busted and broken. And so the peace of God, it, it, it is a part of how God protects and defends us. The question to this is, so, so how, do we, how do we obey these verses? Most of you have heard those before. Some of you have probably memorized them. But, but can, if we can just be honest, man, some of you are probably thinking, how? How do I rejoice always? And how do I, in every circumstance, Trust God and have the peace of God, um, and, and take in prayer, uh, take take to Him in prayer whatever it is I'm struggling with, and and be thankful about the fact that I get to do that. Take it to Him in prayer. How do I do that when my circumstance is so hard and so painful, and I cannot see possibly how it could end up okay? How do I obey these verses? How do I walk in in The beautiful picture that's painted here is is a possibility to be anxious about nothing, to be full of the peace of God, and that it would guard our hearts and minds from the lies and the deceptions that we are so prone to believe. Here's part of what that looks like the peace of God, friends, is tied to the promises of God. And God has said that He sees you, He knows exactly what you're going through he won't leave you, and he sees things and knows things you don't even have the capacity to see or know. That's a good spot to say amen right there about your God. Because you, part of why our peace gets rattled, part of why we struggle with seeing Philippians 4, 4 through 7 as something that is a reality that can be walked through by faith, and and, and oftentimes for us it just, it seems like an unattainable ideal, is, is that we are not grounded in the promises of God and we are not sure, first and foremost, that he sees and knows things that we don't even have the capacity to know. Most of the time where we get spooled up and and our, our hearts begin to betray us and they are troubled and they are fearful is when we, A, forget the promises of God, but then B, We forget to be humble. We forget to understand how much higher and better God is than us, how much smarter than he is, how much more wisdom he has, how much more powerful he is than us because we're looking at the situations. We're looking through our lens and what we can see. We're looking at all the difficulty. We're thinking about what I've done everything I can do and nothing's moving, nothing's changing, and we're forgetting that what we can do to try to move or change the situation is is a grain of sand, compared to what God can do. There's an immeasurable distance between what your effort can produce and what God's can. This is the God that spoke and created all things, brought all things into existence by the power of his will, the declaration of his sovereign plan and purpose. This is the God we're dealing with. He does see things and does know things that you don't even have the capacity to see or know. Sometimes your heart is troubled. Sometimes you are not able to be anxious for nothing because you are not humble enough to understand that God is far higher than you and that all of his promises to you are holding true. He does see you. He knows exactly where you're at. He will not leave you. And he sees and knows things that you don't know. He has said he will work all things for your good and for his glory if you will trust him. The question is not, will God be faithful to his promise? That's not the question. The question is, can we trust and believe? Can we rest in the peace of God, knowing that he will do what he has promised? That's the question. And if you find yourself not sure if he's going to stick to his promises, then dear friend, what I'm saying to you, what I'm encouraging you towards, is to understand that that's a, that's a misconception on your part. That's right there, you're believing something that is untrue. Can you be humble enough to acknowledge that you have the potential to believe untrue things? I sure hope you can. Because it doesn't matter how far we get along on this sanctification journey, it doesn't matter how close to glorification we think we've gotten on this side of eternity, we, we are not there yet and we are all prone to the distraction and the foolishness of deception. We all are struggling with blind spots and dark spots in our understanding. And just because we understood something at one time doesn't mean in the midst of the current storm we still see that thing or we've still held on to that anchor and sometimes those things need to be revisited. Sometimes we need to re encourage ourselves with the promises of God. We need to think about all that he has said. And so right now, if you're struggling to believe that God will actually be faithful to you, I would just ask you to find me some good evidence. Find me some actual practical evidence that God is now vacated the throne, is impotent, unable, or unwilling to be faithful to every promise that he's made. Find me some good evidence of that. See, because when I put it that way, you would go, duh, no, I can't. But you're not thinking about that. You're just sitting there, you know, wringing your hands, thinking about how big the problem is, instead of bringing yourself to a place of focusing upon the promises of God and then resting in the stable, beautiful peace that comes in trusting Him. You don't have to be anxious about anything. Well, I am. Great. Thank you for acknowledging that. Then, first of all, let's understand that when God has said, Be anxious for nothing that we don't just get to be in a pity party because we feel anxious. We have to repent of that. Because what we are functionally saying, whatever you're anxious about right now, you're functionally saying, God, I don't think either A, you're faithful enough to do this or powerful enough to do this. So which one is it? It's really neither of those when somebody puts it in that terms for us, but we just don't think about it. We get all wrapped up and spooled up in the difficulty of the situation and we're not looking to the truth, man. And so that's why... It's a beautiful thing for God's people to come together like this. And it's a beautiful thing to have somebody that loves you enough to open up a Bible and yell at you. Not one half an amen in the my God Almighty. Thank you, brother. There's one person in this church that knows what that word is. Woo! Amen. Faith in God's promises sets God's peace as a guard over our wicked and wayward hearts. These wicked and wayward hearts, they go straight to fear and despair when the storms of life approach. Too many of us are run on emotion. Emotions are not bad, they are a gift from God, but too many of you are run on your emotions. That is what's dictating what you're going to believe about whatever situation you're in. Emotions are a gift from God. It's something that helps us express the dynamic, complex beauty of his character and nature. Yes, but they are not the primary thing God has given us with which to make decisions and decide what we're going to believe. And some of you don't even know the difference between standing upon God's promises, his faithfulness and what he said in his word, and being run by your emotions. What I'm saying in this, the big, the big idea here is I want to try to paint a picture for you from the scriptures what the peace of God is, what it looks like, and I want you to be humble enough to say, do I have that in my life? Now, let's, let's just say none of us are perfect at any part of what God has called us to. Can we just say that? We are all in a place of growing and learning and trying to work with God as he pulls us along on this journey of being more like Jesus. So, yes, none of us really is anxious about nothing, But instead of just settling into that and saying, well, nobody is, so everyone gets a free pass. That's not what we're supposed to do, man. We're supposed to say, okay, let me every single day wake up and let me run every single thought that I'm having, all the anxieties that I'm struggling with, every situation that causes my heart to fear. And I need to make those submit to God's word. Every single thing I'm terrified of, every single thing that causes me anxiety, has God spoke to that? Whatever it is. And whatever God has said, I need to let that come and crush into dust whatever that lie is trying to set itself up as an idol in my heart to be worshipped. Because that's what ends up happening. You let these things linger, they will build up into an idol that becomes something you have to serve. And then it's a lot harder to get rid of it. That's why we were told in God's word to take every single thought captive and make it submit to the word of God. And for many of us, we just let those thoughts run rampant way too long to the point where they get their own legs and they get, they get deep roots and they get to sink themselves way down into our hearts. And when you pull it up, it hurts a lot. So let's not do that. The first thing I gave you in terms of understanding how the Bible describes the peace of God was Philippians 4. I'm now going to go to Romans 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If we have peace with God... We can walk in the safety and security that comes with the peace of God, and that changes the way we approach every single trial and tribulation that comes our way. That changes the way we approach every single trial and tribulation that comes our way. If you were listening to what I said above, you heard a key to how we can walk in the peace of God. We must be at peace with God. And then God's word tells us that, that there's only one way that that happens. There is only one way that we can be at peace with God. We're talking about the peace of God, but that, there's no chance of that without being at peace with God. And that might be confusing language for you. You might think, well, who's God not? God's, God is love. He's at peace with everybody. We'll, we'll deal with that. But let's, let's just look at real quick what the Bible says is necessary for us to be at peace with God. Romans 5, one. therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have peace with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior, then what does it look like for us to walk in the peace of God? If we have peace with God, what does it look like to walk in the peace of God and some of you might be confused about this language of what do you mean peace with God what does that look like well that's that's because um, there is there's is a pervasive temptation uh, and it's been throughout church history but it, it's it's reared its ugly head again in, in a very vibrant way in our current uh, cultural context that, that you know uh, we don't we don't want to uh, offend people and so we try to kind of candy coat, uh, much of what the Bible says about God. But, but God is love. He does draw men by his loving kindness. These things are all absolutely true. Uh, but at the same time, we need to understand that if, if what is said in Romans 5, 1 is not in place, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If there is not faith in Jesus Christ that takes someone from being a rebel and a wretch to being a son or daughter of God, then they are not at peace with God. They are The Bible describes them at war with God, and we need to be more willing to say that. We need to let people know that God is not just some benevolent old grandpa in the sky that hopes you come around at some point so he can give you some candy and let you come into the fun party at the end. That's not what this looks like. God is aware of the condition of every single person's heart. God is wrathful and vengeful, and he will have justice all the way down to the nth degree. Thankfully, in his grace and mercy... He has made it so that justice can be satisfied by Jesus taking the wrath and punishment that we deserve. But we have to receive that. We have to have that grace applied to us. And that happens by trusting in what the Bible teaches about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So, uh, you're not going to have the peace of God in any form or fashion unless there's first peace with God. So, what are we asking here? What, and what does it look like? What does it look like for us to walk in the peace of God? So the first implication of this has kind of already been covered, and that's that we walk in a spiritual stability. There's a sense of wholeness, and that everything is as it should be. That's that's a key, and that's you. That's tough, right? Everything is as it should be. But hold on, bro. Not everything is as it should be. I've got really hard stuff going on, like we're not talking little issues. We're talking really deep, difficult, hard things are happening right now. Everything is not as it should be. The truth is we can have that sense of wholeness and we can have that sense of calm and that everything is as it should be, even when our situation is screaming at us that it is not. Let me let me try to draw this picture because what I'm not doing is kind of a word of faith perversion here where we just... Deny reality. That's not what the Bible teaches. Here's what the Bible teaches. We don't, have, we don't have fear-filled or troubled hearts as we acknowledge the difficulty of living in a world that is ravaged by sin and its effects. You can have, you can fully, you can stare the reality of the brokenness that sin has caused. You can stare it right in the face and acknowledge that it's true and yet at the very same time, stand in the peace of God knowing that his promises are true that his might and his power will not be challenged and that he will finish everything that he started all the way until the end. We don't have to get caught in this weird thing where we start saying just denying the reality of what it is. We don't have to bury our head in the sand. We can say, yes, this hurts. Yes, this is hard. And yet, God is good and I will not let my heart be troubled. I will not fear. I will not let anxiety grip me and drag me into a place of unbelief. The peace of God will guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Even when I don't understand where all the pain's coming from and how it could ever possibly get better, I don't have to understand because God understands and he loves me and he's for me and he's protecting me and he's going to walk with me. And so I'll lay down and I will have sweet sleep. Because God is watching out. I don't have to keep trying to figure it out. I don't have to keep trying to flip the Rubik's Cube and come up with a new equation so that I can feel at peace that I have it figured out. Even if you get to the place, dear friend, that you, you're that smart, maybe you're just that much of a baller that everything you've got going on, every difficulty that you have encountered, you think you have it all figured out and you have a plan for it, just wait a minute because that's all going to blow up here at some point his life will come and smack you from some direction you could have never seen coming it'll probably come up out of your own prideful heart if that's really where you're at you'll end up having your legs swept out from under you dependence upon the peace of god that is sourced from the promises of god is our only chance to not drive ourselves crazy to be overrun with fear The peace of God is a gift from God. But Jesus did teach that we can either neglect or cultivate this fruit of the Spirit. And so, what does that look like? First thing I'm going to read you is uh, Matthew 5 9. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. See, this is a fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. The peace of God is a part of God's very nature. Like, we're, just, if, if you're in God's presence, peace is there. You get that, right? It's just, it's a part of who he, he is. All, that's what all of this fruit of the Spirit is. If, 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 you are, if you are sensitive to and perceiving the reality of the Spirit in you, but also the, the manifest glory of the Spirit around us uh, in different times and places, These these are the things that come along with it, and these are the things that should be flowing up out of our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control, right? Against these things, there is no law. That's what's happening here. Uh, And Jesus said, so not, not only is this a fruit of the Spirit, not only is this a gift given to us, this peace of God, but we can be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so peacemakers actively seek to cultivate peace in three ways, at least three ways. The first is with God, and we've already said this. Uh, This is done by receiving grace through faith in Christ alone. Even though God doesn't force his peace upon us, if we want to receive peace with him, it is only through complete and total surrender, okay? Let me just paint this picture for you. We outside of christ we are god's enemies he is the mighty king he is the king above every other king we may all try to be our own king we've got our cardboard crown and we got our stick we're using as a scepter and we got you know some rags we threw up that we think looks like a robe and we're all trying to rule our own little kingdom doing a pitiful job at it am i the only one that ever did that or is there somebody else in here that ran their own little pitiful kingdom it didn't go too good okay three of you acknowledge the rest of you i don't know what happened so that's that's what it looks like. Okay? And and when kings would go to war back in the day, here's here's how that would look. You know, I've got a big army and you've got a big army. Let's let's at least try to meet in the middle here and talk terms of peace so all these men don't have to spill their blood today. Everyone go home their families. We'll figure out what this looks like. I want some of your gold, I want some of your crops, whatever it is. We'll come up to an agreement. We'll have a treaty. That's not what this looks like. Okay? You don't come out and meet God in the middle with a list of terms to come to peace with him you come and you bow on your knee and you say whatever your terms are i will take see god's not going to come and force you but if you want peace with him there's only one way it's utter complete and total surrender to his terms he won't come force those on you but you ain't coming to him on yours it's his terms he's the king and surrender, complete and total, is, is, is that's a non negotiable. That's a part of what this looks like. Peace with God is something that has to be continually cultivated. Uh, when you look at the deeds of the flesh that were above the fruit of the Spirit, you've got idolatry and sorcery in verse 20. Those are the first two. These are kind of the opposite of what I'm talking about right now, making peace with God. Idolatry would be the exact opposite of that full and total surrender to God. Idolatry is giving our worship to something else. And the term idolatry invokes in us a thought of little totems or some other... uh, you know, alternative false god, and, and, and we think, well, I don't, I don't do that. I've never, you know, prayed to Baal or Molech. I've never sacrificed uh, something to them. And so idolatry is not an issue for me. You could think that, but the reality is any we all worship. We are built to worship. We are all worshipers, and you are worshiping something or someone. And how you figure out what you're worshiping is where your heart and focus is on uh, Where your treasure is, your heart is. Where your time, talent, and treasure are focused. Where where the contemplations, when you have time to just sit and think, where does your heart and mind go? Because you uh, you could be somebody that gathers with God's people regularly. You could do a bunch of religious things and yet not actually be in a place of full, complete, and total surrender, acknowledging the kingship and the lordship of God and thus not be in peace with him. You're only coming to that table. The only reason you can come and talk to that God is because all of the sin you've done against this king, he's willing to forgive because his son paid the price for it. That's the only way you even get to the table. Uh, but, but half surrender won't do. Idolatry is the opposite of this. We need to check our hearts constantly, knowing that we are prone to let our worship and our affection wander, peacemakers are seeking to cultivate peace with God. They also are seeking to cultivate peace with other people. As in, so there's a vertical peacemaking between us and God. There's a horizontal peacemaking between us and other people. This is part of how this gift uh, and this fruit of the spirit is cultivated. Uh, there's there's some uh, there's some deeds of the flesh. Listed above the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. These would be the deeds of the flesh set in juxtaposition against the fruit of the Spirit of peace, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. These are strife and jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions. This is where we get in trouble with one another. Idolatry, sorcery, that's us in in that vertical way rebelling against God, but we we then end up with relational and peace issues with one another when we fall into these other foolish things. Um, So what we need to know from that is that we are called to peace not only with God but peace with one another, to be peacemakers with one another. But what that does not mean is that healthy conflict is not Sometimes needed. And and how we know that is the Bible lays out healthy boundaries for how to deal with that. Here's the reality: humans, we we have we have rough, knobby edges, man. And when we bump into each other, and and even sometimes it's we're trying to do life together and we're really trying to obey Jesus and do this thing, we're gonna bump into each other, we're gonna there's gonna be issues, there's gonna be perspective. Misalignments. There's going to be conflict. And oftentimes, what people think peace means is just never dealing with those, just figure out a way to sweep it under the rug and not deal with it. Uh, or don't ever let that person know I have an issue, but, but maybe sometimes I just harbor it in my heart, or, or uh, a much worse iteration would be to then talk to somebody else about it other than the person I have the issue with. But the Bible gives us healthy conflict resolution, and, and the reality is that sometimes the only way to true peace is through healthy conflict. So let me read you what Matthew 18 says in terms of how it is uh, we should seek peace through the process of uh, dealing with issues because those are going to arise. You're going to have issues with somebody at some point. And part of why you're going to have issues with them is because they're a sinful human. But the other reason you're going to have issues with them is because you are a sinful human. Amen. Didn't expect any tambourines to get busted out on that one, but it needed to be said. Here's what Matthew 18 says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Whoo! 2018, man. This is Matthew 18, but in 2018, we are not trying to do anything with these verses. Let me just say this is a bobo moment where you blink off and blink off. Right? You just turn the page. I'm, I don't want to mess with that, okay? First of all, because it talks about the church having authority to deal with people uh, if they refuse to repent. And that, whoo, you want to talk about people instantly start, cold? It's a cold? No, man. It's called church discipline, and it's one of the historical three marks of a of a true church that is actually following Jesus. And so, here's I can't get in I can't get into that. Uh, <laughs> winding it back in. I, I want to be serious, okay? I've I, there. I don't know where they're at. Um, you know, if you have got questions, Pastor Jordan knows the library really good, and, and I can try to help you figure it out. If you if you have an issue with church discipline, if you think we're just twisting the verses or whatever, or you think we want to control you as if that's even possible, um, please come talk to us. Please come talk to us um, and let us help you understand what the Bible teaches about it and why we're not willing to abandon what the Bible clearly teaches in terms of the responsibility for shepherds to care for the souls of their people, even if that means calling them to accountability to the point that We do have to exert church discipline. What that looks like and why that's real and why the church historically for a couple thousand years has considered a gathering of people not willing to do that, a shepherd not willing to do that as apostate and not of the true church. If you've got questions, we've got answers. That was somebody's slogan at some point. I can't remember, but seriously, come talk to us. And I realize, I, like, maybe I sounded real aggressive there, or whatever. Let me. If you have questions about church <laughs> discipline, we'd really like the chance to talk to you. And our vocal tone will be along this line right here the whole time. I'm, I'm being serious though, because people do have confusion about it. And the problem is, you can look at the landscape of available options of places that call themselves churches in 2018 and see a lot of places. And it just seems like the blessing of God is all over the thing um, because of a bunch of arbitrary success metrics that I'm not sure the Bible would have us use to measure. But that's beyond the point. And, and there's not even membership. So how do you how would you ever do church discipline? And it's like, well, God's seems like God's fine with that. And I'm just saying, here's how we know what God's fine with. He gave us His Word. That's what we're going to use to determine what He's fine and not fine with. And. If you struggle with what I'm talking about, let's let's seriously let's talk about it. And we won't be aggressive at all. We want you to understand that it love motivates all of it. I don't want to have to wrestle anybody about anything. Do you understand that? I got other stuff to do. (laughs) I don't want to have to fight sinful sheep. I don't want to have to get bit and all the stuff that goes along with it. I I don't want. I don't like conflict. However, I may come across, it's not fun but sometimes it's necessary to the saving of somebody's soul. Sometimes it's necessary. So, what does the Bible lay out for healthy conflict resolution? Okay, so sometimes that's going to come down to the church, the church collectively having to deal with people, but this, we're talking on a one-on-one level. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Um... I will pay for anybody that wants to get this tattooed on them. That offer stands, okay? If you will get Matthew 18, 15 tattooed on you, as a reminder, I'll pay for it. Because, man, people don't do this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Um, Not every translation includes... Uh, against you, some of them just say if your brother sins, and I think you could try to if it's because it says against you, you would be like, well, the thing they did, I'm not really offended by it, so that doesn't verse doesn't apply. No, if somebody's in trouble in sin and you notice, step one for you, whether it's personally offended you or not, is to go to that person. Okay, it's not to sit and let it fester in your heart. It's not to go find somebody else to tell about it because that's gossip, and that is one of the number one undermining factors to the peace of God being at work amongst the people. Okay? It's sin. It's sin. It's not whatever excuse you put over top of the fact that you did not go talk to the person you have the issue with first. None, God sees past all of that and none of it will stand. And if you are prone to do this, you need to repent and stop because God won't tolerate it. And you are contributing to the very opposite of what Ephesians says that we are supposed to guard unity and the bond of peace among God's people. Every one of us is responsible for that. You cannot be a gossip man. You cannot go around talking about whatever it is you are, I'm concerned or I have a prayer request or whatever you paint it. Okay? It, It doesn't matter. Go to the person that there's an issue with and deal with them first. Well, that's really hard. Yeah, I know. Here's what it'll do. First of all, if it is just you that has an offense if your only course of action possible is to go look that person in the eye and talk to them about the issue, you might figure out you're not as offended as you thought you were. But it's real easy to go find somebody else and just start spouting off. And we use a bunch of psychological psychobabble like, well, I just had to vent or get it off my chest. Well, find me that in the Bible and you can do it. Well, in Deuteronomy it said, if you're angry, just go tell everybody and vent. No, it doesn't. In Matthew 18, it says, don't do that. The exact opposite, actually. It's only when they refuse to listen, if they will not humbly meet you in the middle and repent for whatever the infraction is, that's when you go get somebody else. And and the motivation there is not, oh, sweet, now we get to lay the smack down on them. Your heart should be broken. If you come to that person and you're trying to Call them to repentance, whether it's an infraction against you or just in general. Their lives in danger. Their their spirituality and, and their connection to Jesus is in danger because they're in unrepentant sin. Your heart should be broken if you leave that interaction and they did not listen to you. The hope is to restore them. The hope is in love to call them back towards Jesus. You're only going to get other people to help you try to pull them back towards Jesus and to love them well. And it only comes to the level where the whole church gets involved because we're trying everything we possibly can to show them that the path you're on is leading to destruction and death for you and we love you and we don't want that to happen. That's what this is about. Sometimes the only way to true peace is through healthy conflict. And we have to stop being cowards for the sake of peace among God's people. We, as peacemakers, we, we, we cultivate the peace of God with God, vertically with other people, horizontally, and then with other people and God. With other people and God. And so as peacemakers, we're looking not only to be at peace with God ourselves, at peace with one another, but we're looking to help others to find a place where they can be at peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us, committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're not only worried about the fact that I'm at peace with God, we're not only worried about the fact that I'm at peace with one another, but we also, because of the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, Through his gospel, our hearts should be moved to care, to be broken when others are not at peace with God, and to care enough to wade into that, to take up this mantle of being an ambassador of reconciliation. That means somebody willing to go and to say, I have a good king. I have a king that has loved me. I have a king that is powerful. I have a king that will love you too. Will you come and will you surrender to this good king? Will you come be a part of his kingdom? That's the invitation. Come be at peace with this king who made you and loves you and has an eternal plan for you. Come. That's our job as ambassadors. Seeking to connect others so that they may also be at peace with God. So that they can taste the peace of God. And then hopefully, they will then help us continue to draw others. Preaching the good news of the gospel. Letting them know how kind and benevolent and loving and long-suffering, and powerful, and how good of a promise keeper our God really is. We're ambassadors, seeking to make peace between God and people. Isn't that God's job? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's you and me, friends. We're peacemakers, blessed if we are. This is the call of God upon us. Everything you're saying is hard. It's hard to be at peace with God. It's hard to be at peace with people. It's really hard to try to draw people into peace with God. Yeah, I know. That's why peace is a fruit of the Spirit, a gift of God given to you. The question is, will you receive it? Will you stir it up? Will you cultivate it? Will you care about it? Will you see where it's lacking in your life and pray for a more vibrant manifestation of the peace of God in your own life? Will you be committed to being a peacemaker Will you ask Jesus to help you? to fill in every gap where you're inadequate to do it. Will you care about it? That's step one. May we be a people who are at peace with God by grace through faith in the Prince of Peace. May we walk in the stability of the peace of God which guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And may we seek to be peacemakers for God's glory and our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for Galatians 5. Thank you for this list of the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you that you're giving us a glimpse into who you are, your character and nature, and how you've shared of your very essence. You've shared it with us as your image bearers, that you made us in your image. And that doesn't mean anatomically, but you have woven into our very being uh, some of what you are and who you are. So we thank you for that. Lord, Uh, Right now, we acknowledge that we are not oftentimes peacemakers. Many times, we are problem makers, and we repent for that, and we ask you to help us, Lord, because we want to obey you. We want to be called sons and daughters of God. We want to please you by being peacemakers, by cultivating this gift, this fruit of the Spirit that is peace amongst us. Thank you, God, for the beautiful truth that though you don't force terms of peace upon us, that 100% full surrender are the only terms you'll accept. Lord, help us to continually walk that out, not just at the time when we first gaze the beauty of your sovereignty, the totality totality of your power that we we crumble and we surrender, but even down the road when when we're tempted to try to take back some autonomy for ourselves, we're tempted to try to come back and get some sovereignty for ourselves. Lord, let us daily, daily surrender, daily bow the knee and call you Lord and Master and King because you're worthy of nothing less than that. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised that we don't have to have hearts that are troubled or full of fear. Thank you that we don't have to be anxious for anything, but in everything we can come to you in prayer and supplication, thanking you for the beautiful privilege of bringing these things to you and that your peace, your peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, I need my heart and my mind to be guarded. If it's left unguarded, oh God, it's a cesspool. It leads me into so much trouble and danger. I need your peace to defend me, to be my rear guard, to help me. God, help me, please, to cultivate and not work against your peace in my life and in the life of others. Lord, we acknowledge our inadequacy to do any of this. We submit underneath the might of your hand. We ask for your help. We love you and we trust you.